The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 7 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC7. This is Secret Church 7, Episode 7. Engagement in warfare. And what we've got here in Ephesians 6 is a picture of the armor of God. And what Paul is calling us to do is to respond. Remember, two actions. Stand firm, press forward. Defensive, offensive. And we've got to respond urgently. First, we've got to respond urgently. We're living in evil days. This is not time to sit back and relax. We must respond consciously. Stand firm is a command. Do this. Can't dismiss yourself from this battle. We must respond vigorously and corporately. It's interesting, Ephesians chapter 6, these commands, this armor, it's all given in the plural. It's given to the church, not individuals fighting different battles. It's a church fighting the battle together. It's a community. We must respond specifically. How? And this is where we come to these weapons for warfare, the armor of God. Now, we got to be really careful when we come to the armor of God not to overinterpret this metaphor and not to just go off into all kinds of random stuff about this piece of the armor did this on this soldier. And so that's what this means when it comes to righteousness. Like, we got to be really careful there. Belt of truth, it's important because it hold up, holds up your pants. And so truth holds up your pants. But unfortunately, Paul forgot to mention that we need to wear pants. So it's not even mentioned in there. So don't take the analogy too far far, okay? Don't overinterpret this picture. The armor of God is fundamentally a reflection of the character of God. This is part of the reason you're hearing from me a pretty strong stand against some of the formulaic nature of spiritual warfare today, because spiritual warfare in Scripture is not primarily about technique, but character. And it's almost like the way we've handled spiritual warfare, we've said it's not enough to be clothed in the armor and the character of God. Instead, you need to speak certain formulas and confront and command and cast out and verbally spar with evil spirits. And I hear folks that I respect talk about this a lot. But the implication is if you're not doing that kind of warfare, you're not really involved in spiritual warfare. But that's not the case. If that were the case, then why don't we see biblical admonitions like that all over the New Testament? We don't. Instead, we see Christians going in the character of God. If we have to worry about technique, then why doesn't New Testament spell out techniques like that? It doesn't for a reason. We need to appropriate the character of God. Isaiah 11, you see this picture of reflecting the character of God, of reflecting the armor. William Grinnell said, we must not confide in the armor of God, but in the God of this armor because all our weapons are only mighty through God. So the armor is a reflection of his character and a demonstration of his power. Paul is writing to a people who are used to seeking power in gods or spirits. And he says, there's a new source of power here in Christ, Ephesians 4. There's a new means of power. And it's not magical formulas or manipulating God to do this or that. Instead, you experience his power through his spirit as you commune with him and a new purpose for power. You're not using power in the spiritual world to advance yourself or inflict harm on others, but to sacrifice yourself and love for one another, Ephesians 5. So what I want us to do is I want us to walk through pretty briskly the different pieces of armor. And I think the focus is less on the actual objects, belt, breastplate, this or that, than it is on the character and the power of God that's represented in these things. So the belt of truth, belt of truth. What does that mean for Paul? I think fundamentally throughout Paul's writings, including here, truth We need in spiritual warfare a true understanding of who Christ is, 
who Christ is, one of Satan's key strategies is corrupting and distorting our understanding of Christ. I'm convinced this is one of the biggest, most overlooked aspects of spiritual warfare in contemporary literature today because we think, we think that what we think about Christ doesn't really affect some of the details of our lives. And that's why in our church culture today, you are engulfed in all kinds of tips on how to manage your money better and how to do this or that better and avoid stress or this or that. And you're not hearing doctrine about who Christ is because we don't think it connects and it does. What we believe about Christ and who Christ is and our knowledge of Christ has everything to do with how we will live at work, at home, at play, at school, everything is driven by an understanding, a true understanding of who Christ is. And Paul was after this, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Don't miss this. You go to 11, 4, chapter 11, verse 4. We don't have time to do that tonight. But Paul is confronting some teachers who were talking about and preaching a Jesus other than the one he had preached to them. That's what he's confronting here. And it says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Listen to how Paul defines strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So when Paul starts talking about strongholds, this is one of the most widely quoted verses in all the spiritual warfare literature that's out there. And this imagery of stronghold is used to refer to all kinds of sinful habits that people have, strongholds in their lives that they need to gain victory over. And so people will speak to this or that stronghold in our lives. Some even use this word stronghold to refer to a city, a region, or a country where there's not much response to the gospel. There's strongholds there. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. When Paul talks about stronghold, he is specifically addressing false teachings about Christ that were setting themselves up against the knowledge of God. Strongholds are not these sins that take over here or there. Strongholds are teachings about Christ that need to be shot down by the truth of God's word. Teachings like Jesus is not fully man, very prevalent in the New Testament days, first century. First John is addressing that. Others claiming Jesus is not fully God. Colossians 2, addressing Ebionites who were denying the deity of Christ. Jesus is not superior. Hebrews 1, addressing limitations that people were putting on the glory of Christ. Jesus is not sufficient. This is what Paul is addressing in Colossians chapter 2. That Jesus is not sufficient. He's more along the lines of angels. This is what we see in the cults, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, even in the popular Jesus seminar that's all over new historical Jesus studies. It's all devaluing the person of Christ. And it's false teachings about who Christ is. Those are strongholds that need to be taken down. And spiritual warfare is preaching truth against falsehood to take down false ideas about Christ. Now all this other stuff that we equate with strongholds, that's not what Scripture's talking about. Now even if we, we say, okay, well I believe Jesus is fully God, fully man, those things, I think we need to be aware of other subtle distortions. One of, we've talked about one of Satan's key strategies is deception. And there's all kinds of ideas about Jesus that are out there today that are subtle. Jesus without a body, meaning Jesus disconnected from the body of Christ. Christian individualists everywhere who feel absolutely no need in their relationship with Christ to be connected to his body and the church. Jesus who is far away. Many people who think Jesus is just remote from the problems that I'm walking through every day. Healthy, wealthy Jesus who wants us to sit back and enjoy all this life has to offer. 
Not a biblical picture. Jesus, my pal. Jesus is a cool friend who makes me feel good about myself. And we miss out on the worth of his transcendence and glory and power. Jesus who did not suffer. There's a whole segment of Christianity today that thinks all suffering is from the devil. And even if we wouldn't say that, a whole segment of comfortable, complacent Christianity who think, Christians who think that Jesus is the key to a nice middle-class American Christian lifestyle. Jesus with no mission. People who believe that Jesus has just called us to sit back and enjoy grace, not proclaim grace to the ends of the earth. Jesus with no heart. Jesus who is fine with the starving millions in the world and doesn't call us to do anything about it. Unforgiving Jesus who still think that they will pay for some of the things. Jesus could never forgive this or that. Or on the other hand, Jesus who does not discipline. People who believe that Jesus doesn't really care that much about how much I sin. He loves me just the way I am. Now, spiritual warfare is addressing all of these false ideas about Christ. And in spiritual warfare, we have to, this is part of demolishing strongholds, beware of false doctrine. There's a great quote there from Francis Schaeffer that I would encourage you to go back and look at because we accommodate to the culture around us and we, we jeopardize truth in the process. Beware of false doctrine. False doctrine is subtle. It is subtle. Dangerously subtle. It is powerful. And false doctrine Galatians chapter five is dangerous. Paul says, you're running good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? And he gets to the end and he says, these agitators who are teaching false doctrine, I wish they, could go the whole, they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Them are fighting words right there. Demolish strongholds. Beware of satanic deception. Over and over again, we see it throughout the New Testament over and over again. Don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. I've listed three examples there. So a true understanding, belt of truth, a true understanding of who Christ is, and then second, a true understanding of who we are in Christ. This is exactly what Paul is addressing, confronting in the book of Ephesians. He's saying from the very beginning, we Jewish and Gentile Christians together in this church, we have been... Saved by the grace of Christ. Think about what we once were. This is Ephesians 2. We were dead in sin. Dead. Not sick. Dead. In the casket. Feel the gravity of that. Dead in sin. Living in darkness. Children of disobedience. Captivated by sinful desire. And doomed to hell. Literally objects of wrath. That's what we were. What has he done? Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, one of the most incredible pictures in Scripture. The Father planned our salvation before the creation of the world, before the sun was formed, the moon was created, or one star shined in the sky, before a mountain appeared or a drop of water was placed in an ocean, before creation, the God of the universe set his affections on you. Oh. Predestined you to be adopted as his sons. Father planned our salvation. Son purchased our salvation. Purchased in redemption through his blood. And the spirit preserves our salvation. Is a deposit in us guaranteeing our internal inheritance. True understanding of who we are in Christ. What we were, what God has done, and who we are now. Paul talks about we're his body. The very body of Christ. We're his building. We're his building. We're the temple. And we're his bride. We're the bride of Christ. What an incredible image. Bodybuilding bride. 
We've been saved by the grace of Christ, Paul tells the church at Ephesus. We have been filled with the power of Christ, Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. Such an incredible picture of Christ. Just put these together real quick. Don't miss this. Christ, this is what Ephesians 1, 18 through 23 teaches. Christ has all authority. All authority. He is the risen Savior. He is the exalted King. He's seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given. Think of a title, he's got one greater. Risen Savior, exalted King, sovereign Lord. This is who Christ is. And listen to what Paul says. God placed everything under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, not including the church, although obviously we are under Christ, but he says appointed him to be head over everything for the church, on behalf of the church. Don't miss this. Christ has all authority. Second, the church has the fullness of Christ. Colossians 2.9 says, in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ. Put those together. If Christ has all authority and the church has the fullness of Christ, then that means all the authority and all the earth belongs to who? The church. You catching this? I'm not making this stuff up. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 3. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. All things are yours. Brothers and sisters, we are not victims of sin. We are victors over sin. We are not powerless in a pagan culture around us. We have all power over the pagan culture around us. We are not weak in spiritual warfare. We are strong. We have all authority. And we now display the glory of Christ. The picture in Ephesians. Now this is all leading up to the armor of God. We now display the glory of Christ. God's design is to use the body of his son, the church, to show the glory of his son to the world. Listen to Ephesians chapter three. The manifold wisdom, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Let that soak in. God shows his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms in the picture of the church. Just think of it. Especially when you know rulers and authorities over in Ephesians chapter six is a reference to these spiritual forces of evil. This is God saying, I'm going to redeem him and him and him and her and her and I'm gonna take them from their death and sin. I'm gonna bring them to life and I'm gonna transform their hearts and I'm gonna lift them up as a display of my glory and I'm gonna say to all the forces of hell, you want to see my goodness, see what I have done in the redemption of these people. This is the church. He displays his glory in the heavenly realms through the church. God's design is to use the body of his son, show the glory of his son to the world. God literally says here, look at the church and you will see my son. You'll see the glory of my son. Look at how I've bought her, predestined her, called her, redeemed her, saved her, preserved her for all of eternity. See my glory. The belt of truth, true understanding of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. It involves honesty, Honesty with God, with ourselves, with others. Starting spiritual warfare, true understanding of Christ, who he is, true understanding of who we are in Christ. Then the breastplate of righteousness. This is something that is given to us. This is not self-righteousness. That's a strategy of the adversary to convince men and women all across our culture that we can be righteous on our own. Now I want you to think about righteousness in Paul's writings Spiritual warfare from two angles. First, positional righteousness. Positional righteousness. 
This is so huge. I'm convinced that many, many, many Christians are weak in spiritual warfare because they are weak on this truth. I know so many people who have asked Jesus to come into their heart time and time and time and time again, over and over and over and over and over again, because they don't know who they are in Christ. And I want you to feel the weight for a minute of Colossians 1.27. Christ is in you, brother or sister, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. What that means is we have the empowered life. These Colossian believers were being tempted to believe low things about Christ, false teachings about Christ. And so he gives them a picture of Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The image of God, the author of creation, the head of the church, the savior of the world. Just let this soak in. Pause for a second. Realize if this Christ is anywhere near you, you're radically different. And then the mammoth truth, Colossians 1.27, is the image of God, author of creation, head of the church, and savior of the world, is living in you. He's in you. Empowered life, the exchanged life. This is the whole picture. He has taken our sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we are now clothed in his righteousness. We have been crucified with Christ, and we no longer live. Christ lives in us. He died our death, and we now live his life. Christ is in you. This is Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. The beauty of Christ in you. Empowered, exchanged life, the secured life. Christ in you is the hope of glory. I want you to think about rock solid security in the context of spiritual warfare with what Colossians is teaching here. If you've been around Brook Hills for a while, you remember when we study this text, and I want to bring this back out real quickly here. It's gonna be real quick. Here is you, you, there you are, okay. Now, the picture is, you were born dead in sin, a slave of darkness, a child of disobedience. And what happened when you were saved? Let's bring in Christ. Christ came in you and He is sealed in you. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Christ is not going anywhere. Christ in you is in you forever. But here's the beauty. Paul doesn't just talk about how Christ is in you. He talks even more about how you are what? In Christ, okay? So let's bring out this picture. Now you are in Christ. So Christ is in you and you're in Christ. Things are looking pretty secure, but the story doesn't end there. You get down to Colossians 3, 3. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in who? God. So, Christ is in God. Christ in you, you in Christ, Christ in God. Now, do you realize what this means, brothers and sisters? If the adversary wants to come at you, then first he has to get through God the Father, which he does not have a good track record of doing. And once he gets through God the Father, he is going to meet God the Son, the one who absolutely made a public spectacle of him at the cross. And then, just assuming he can get through God the Father and God the Son, he's still got God the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that is living in you. Here's the beauty. You have no reason to fear, Christian. You have no reason to fear anything in this life, anything in this world, and anything in spiritual warfare. You are as secure as secure can get. 
Christ in you is the hope of glory. Okay. All right. Finally, the completed life, the hope of glory. In Christ, who is your life appears, and you also will appear with him in glory. Here's the beauty. Christ in you now means Christ in you forever. C.S. Lewis said, the goal toward which God is beginning to guide you is absolute perfection. And no power in the whole universe except you yourself can prevent him from taking you to that goal. So there's positional righteousness. This is who you are in Christ. Christ in you. But then, so let that soak in for a second. Now, practical righteousness. Live that out. Live it out. Experience the effects of that position every single day of your life. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Your old self is dead, so walk in this reality. Jesus died for you so that he might live in you. This is more than Jesus simply being your savior. As awesome as that is, Jesus is your life. Authentic spiritual transformation happening from the inside out. Jesus does not desire to improve you. Jesus desires to transform you. And Christianity is nothing less than the outliving of the indwelling Christ. Christ is being formed in you. This is spiritual warfare. Christ being formed in you. Strap on the breastplate of righteousness. Truth, righteousness. Feet prepared with the gospel of peace. So in the midst of this war, we have found peace with God and we fight this war proclaiming a message of peace. We need a ready offense to accompany a staunch defense. So we go on offense and warfare with a message of peace. We're ready at every turn to proclaim the hope that's been given to us. And don't miss this. This is Philemon 6. Proclaiming the gospel is the best way to know the power of the gospel. Do you want to experience the power of the gospel in your life, Christian? Then give the gospel away. Be active in sharing your faith so you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Spiritual warfare involves a readiness, a willingness, an active involvement in proclaiming this gospel. This is the whole picture of Paul in Romans. He says, we need to remember whose we are. We are servants of the gospel. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, Romans 1. We're sent out with the gospel. He's talking about how he's an apostle and we are set apart for the gospel of God. We're set apart. Now we need to recognize what we believe when it comes to the gospel. Let me ask you, Christian, if I were to ask you point blank right now at this moment to to share a biblical picture of the gospel and all of its elements, would you be able to do that? Right now, would you be able to give short, concise, yet thorough picture of the gospel? If we know anything well, we need to know the gospel well. We will not experience victory in spiritual warfare if we are weak on the gospel. The gospel of peace involves the character of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ. These are the five elements that I think are core to the gospel in the New Testament that we've talked about at Brook Hills. The sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of faith, and the urgency of eternity. You were to ask me, what's the gospel? I would say the just and gracious God of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful man and all of his rebellion, and he has sent his son, God in the, fla- in the flesh, to take his, bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that everyone who believes in him and trusts in him can be reconciled to God forever. This is the gospel. We need to know the gospel well. We need to know what we believe. We need to realize why we're here. 
I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm eager to preach the gospel. We are here to exalt his name and we are here to penetrate the nations. We have a responsibility to pray and a debt to pay. Obligated. I'm in debt to Greeks and non-Greeks. Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. We owe the gospel. Owe the gospel. We need to resolve how we'll live. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We will live like nothing can shame us. This is spiritual warfare. You want to see victory in spiritual warfare. It's living like nothing can shame us and living like nothing can stop us. Prepared to proclaim the gospel of peace. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical dot net